Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. And we're back. So welcome to Season 2, Episode 10. Just some quick notes before we get into the featured books. Uh, I'm still reading Ordinary Insanity. I was very distracted by book number six of the Outlands Deer series. So I expect to have Ordinary Insanity finished in time for episode 11. But again, due to the reading of the Outlander book, I was not reading as many other books. So some of the choices for this episode might not have made the, the pick should I have had the opportunity to read more or other things. So our first featured book is our reading soon pick from episode 9 that I actually did manage to read in the two-week period, and that is The Rose Coat. It is written by Kate Quinn, a white American author of historical fiction. She attended Boston University, where she earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in classical voice. And she has written nine books, most of them, well, actually all of them, historical fiction, and the uh, last three, which she is best known for, or the last two, are uh, all set within the 20th century, usually somehow tied to World War II. So I was made aware of The Rose Code, having read uh, Quinn's prior two books, Huntress and the Alice Network, so I want to read this one as well, having found those to be enjoyable reads. So The Rose Code is about three women from different backgrounds who have come to work at Bletchley Park to do their bit for the British war effort. There's Osla, a society girl with a chip on her shoulder, Mab, a working class woman with scars looking to better her future, and Beth, the local village spinster with great skill with puzzles. The three of them come to join the, the uh, code-breaking work at Bletchley Park and the novel alternates between events during World War II um, again, primarily at Bletchley, to the build-up to the post-war wedding of Princess Elizabeth to Prince Philip. So again, as this is the third novel of Quinn's I've read, uh, it, it has become clear that she has a pattern that she likes to write. So those usually start in the, wherever the story's setting in the present and drop hints at a mystery in the past and then sustains both narratives, again, alternating between the past of the, the, the book setting to the present day uh, until the two narratives eventually reach the point where they join uh, and then there is some eventual conclusion. Uh, as you no doubt got from the book description, it's a fictionalized look at the contributions of women codebreakers in the fight against Germany, again, during World War II. And it's good fun, but, uh, but somewhat predictable. So, of course, these three women of different backgrounds become friends through their time spent working in the same place, and and there is a terrible falling out among them. Uh, again, it takes place during war, so there are several personal tragedies that the heroines have to overcome. And as is clear from the beginning, there will be wedding bells ringing, but for who? Our second book of the episode is The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Valerie Evans, an African-American writer, fiction writer and professor. 
She is a graduate of Columbia University and holds an MFA from the University of Iowa. In 2011, she was honored by the National Book Foundation as one of its five under 35 writers. Also in 2011, her debut collection of short stories, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, received the Penn Robert Bingham Prize. This year, in 2021, she received the New Literacy Project Joyce Carol Oates Prize. <clears throat> so I became aware of the Office of Historical Corrections through a review of it in book pages, and I've had uh, her first short story collection on my to-read list since I think I entered a Goodreads giveaway for it. This volume is six short stories and one novella that explore particular moments and relationships in her characters' lives. On page 289, Evan writes that this book is, among many other things, about grief and loss and about women unwilling to diminish their desire to live full and complex lives. And in reading through that, it is mostly wonderfully and fully realized characters, and the less wonderful are still very human. We are only with them for a short time, but I would like to see what uh, Evans could do with a longer narrative. And all these stories are worth a read and center around the ways history haunts us as we try to live our lives. Uh, and her char Evan's characters are primarily from the perspective of black and multiracial characters, or in one case, a young white college student's misguided efforts to reinvent herself and the effect that has on the black community at her college. And while, again, all those stories are great, the, the one that I found I keep thinking back on the most is the, the novella that closes the volume that also shares the title, The Office of Historical Corrections. And that one centers around an organization that was formed through uh, a congressional uh, effort to create the Office of Historical Corrections. And what they do is they go around ensuring that the pu publicly presented history is historically accurate. So that even if that means listening to tour guides, giving a presentation and correcting them where they make mistakes, looking at the signages and plaques for monuments, making sure again that they are correct and accurate so far as evidence exists. And the central uh, part of the story is the, the main, the narrator as an African-American scholar who is sent to Michigan to clear up one of her former colleagues' corrections to a plaque there uh, on, a, on a, what is now a candy shop, but used to be a, a different business. And uh, this colleague is someone she grew up with. They were the two African-American children in their well-to-do schools. So there's a long tension between them. But as they, as they reach Michigan, they meet up and begin to work together uh, to unravel a multi-generational mystery. So the plaque reflects uh, an African-American who bought a business and then was possibly burned up when the white community decided to try and force them out. So they unravel that mystery looking at the information available through the historical record and uncover the truth. And it has a very gut-wrenching conclusion, but not wishing to give too much away. I do encourage pretty much anyone 
interested in American society, American politics, or history, that they would find this story very engaging and moving. So out of all the books featured this this episode, or probably this month, if not this year, this is one I would definitely recommend to many to read. Our third book is Memorial by Brian Washington, an African-American writer whose fiction and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Magazine, New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Time Magazine, BuzzFeed, the BBC, and many other websites and publications. He is currently the writer in residence at Rice University in Houston, Texas. I came across this uh, as my local library, public library added a copy, uh, and I've had uh, Washington's lot on my to-read list for uh, about a year now. I'll, I'll hopefully get to that soon. A memorial is focused on Benson, an African-American daycare teacher, and Mike, a Japanese-American. And these two men live together in Houston. They've been together for a couple of years, but they haven't really introduced each other's families. They're, it's not quite clear if they consider themselves roommates with benefits or in a committed relationship. But then Mike leaves to try to connect with his dying estranged father just as his mother arrives in Texas for a visit leaving both Benson and his mother Mitsuko to figure it out as he goes to try and establish some sort of relationship with his father. So this book is very much focused on relationships with those we choose, partners, and those we don't, the families. And it also talks about the difficulty of talking about things you've learned to carry yourself or repress, or like that difficulty some people experience and being able to open up and feel supported by a partner. That's also defining love. Because Mike and Benson are committed enough that they're living together and they do things together, but they're not fully exclusive, because at many points throughout the book it talks about their other relationships that uh, crop up. Throughout the work, the narrative splits between Benson and Mike. Uh, so initially I thought this would be from Benson's viewpoint, but then after 150 pages or so, it suddenly just shifts to Mike's perspective, where he is in Japan talking, uh, dealing with, with his father's illness. I found that very jarring, but as, as it went on, it made more sense. And it is a very frank and realistic that's less more of the tradition of a book being about an extraordinary day in someone's life. It's more, at least from Benson's perspective, a day-to-day -day life. Like, this is, here I am going to work. Oh, my not-quite-mother-in-law is visiting and sharing the apartment, so there's the game to know each other. So it's a little different, but it's still within his daily existence. Whereas what Mike is going through is clearly a major life event. Uh, so, again, that that sudden shift to Mike's perspective, I, I did find very jarring and disjointed. But overall, like a surprisingly hopeful book. And again, had I had I read more this week, this one might not have have made our list. It is an interesting read, but probably more outside my my comfort zone than I might normally read. And then for book four, we are very much leaning back into our comfort zone. So this uh, work is Millennium by John Varley, a white American science fiction author. 
who has won the Hugo Award three times with an additional 12 further nominations, and the Nebula Award twice with six other nominations, and has won 10 Locus Awards. So those, are, again, are all awards for science fiction's writing, either novellas, short stories, or full-length books. And he has been writing since 1974. He has written 14 novels, numerous short stories, and a few screenplays. I became aware of uh, Millennium through a retired, retiring faculty member at the academic institute I work for. He listed it as one of his five favorite books, uh, and he taught a science fiction course and read. He was an English professor and, and read fairly widely. So as Millennium, as described from Varney's personal webpage, is about, or synopsis is, in the skies over Oakland, California, a DC-10 and a 747 are about to collide. And in the far distant future, a time travel team is preparing to snatch the passengers, leaving prefabricated smoking bodies behind for the rescue team to find. And an air disaster investigator gets a phone call that changes his life and the world as we know it. So as I'm reading these notes, I'm realizing that a lot of the books in this, this week's episode have those dual perspectives that alternate. So that, again, happens here with the story unfolding semi-chronologically through the alternating perspectives of the characters Bill Smith, who's leading the time investigating, uh, leading the uh, investigation for the airplane crash, and Luis, who is the leader of the time travel team, who was uh, making sure all those people who were about to die were rescued for other reasons. So this is a shorter work and fairly fast-paced, uh, and kind of well, no, is structured around a mystery. And uh, unlike some of the others, the, the information given is from the perspective of the character, so you really only know what they do. So there's a lot of other things going on that they allude to that aren't really fully explained, that uh, the author addresses some of those things in, the, uh, in an afterword. And as you expect, time travel is the driving force of this narrative. Uh, and it goes through the full mechanics of how this system works. And of course, as you'd expect from a time travel story, paradox is at the, the center of the plot. So it was published in 1983 and is very much of that world where I'm sure a lot of the different ways we operate now would be different, particularly with the way the information is uh, presented to the wider public through some of these characters. So it looks at what humans have done to the planet and what the consequences could be to the future. And as a uh, book to screen quick note here at the end, uh, this was apparently made into a terrible 1989 movie. Uh, just looking at Rotten Tomatoes, they have a aggregate 11% out of 100 based on nine reviews, or the audience score offers a 30%, again, out of a scale of 100. So if you're ever looking for a fun movie to uh, well, a terrible movie to poke fun at. This might be something to pick for your next movie night. And our final book of the week or episode uh, takes us back into the uh, graphic novels. So this one we'll be talking about this episode is Nailbiter, uh, Volume 1, There Will Be Blood. It was written by Joshua Williamson, a white American author known for this series, Birthright and Ghosted, all those for Image, and he has also written for DC with limited and regular series for Robin, Flash, Batman Superman, 
and Justice League. The art is done by Mike Henderson, uh, an American comic book artist who has done work for IDW, Image, Marvel, and Dark Horse. And then it also features the works of Adam Gazowski, colorist, and John J. Hill, letterer. And honestly, I have no idea where I first came across this title. Uh, it's been put out since 2014, so possibly exploring titles available from Image at some point, or it might have been, uh, like I was very into the Dexter series, uh, both the, the TV show and the books, so it could have been in a list of recommended, like if you like Dexter, try this. And why that's important is, Nailbiter is a series centered around the fictional town of Buckaroo, Oregon, which has produced 16 of the worst serial killers in the US. The most recent, Edward Charles Warren, known as the nail-biter due to his chewing of his victim's nails. And it is focused on NSA agent Nicholas Finch, who has come to Buckaroo to find his missing friend, FBI agent Charles Carroll. And he often has to visit the nail-biter and uh, his high school girlfriend, who is now the sheriff, to try and figure out what happened to Carroll. So from that premise, it sounds very interesting, I think, which is what drew me to the series initially. And I was expecting a good deal of blood, which from the synopsis focused on serial killers should not be surprising to anyone. So it's it's a, a blend of a small town mystery with horror and gore. Uh, and Carol, the FBI agent, was there because he was obsessed with the town and wanted to know what happened to cause so many serial killers in one location. So the positives are, at times, it does poke fun at the tropes of horror and slasher stories or those obsessed with serial killers. Uh, but un unfortunately, it also falls into some of the genre pitfalls. So again, the positives are the townsfolks, the people trying to make a life in a notorious town, uh, and the sometimes ghoulish aspects of tourism. So we see that uh, in some of the businesses we're introduced to and some of the people who are living, making a living off those businesses versus the people who live there or in later, later volumes, the people who have tried to leave. The negatives are the pacing can be a little off at times. So like the first one, a lot does happen in some issues, and then the others are the background investigations, laying out the clues. And then they often, but wait, there is another, another victim, another serial killer, another hidden room like all those that kind of like, it's supposed to be a series of limited run, but it feels like it's unfolding in somewhat predictable ways. And Nailbiter himself, is, his role is often unclear. Like he seems almost superhuman at several moments, the way he can get around the town, despite supposedly be mostly living on the sort of house arrest. Like, is he an unrepentant serial killer? Because it, it seems in the vo first volume that he, he got off from being in prison due to, due to some either technicalities or strong work by a lawyer that isn't really fully explained, or at least I remember. However, all this said, uh, I have made my, my way through volume four, and I plan to at least read the next two to see how it ends. I'm hoping that it will have a, a good, strong conclusion and that it won't just have continued to a point where they felt they'd said all they could. 
So for our reading soon in progress books, of course, we have The Ordinary Insanity, which we'll ho uh, hopefully have read and have a review for that for our next episode. And then these are the two books that uh, I've either borrowed from the library or have in my pile that I'm looking forward to trying to read uh, in the next two weeks. So the first is Security by Gina Wolsdorf. And this is a, about the te uh, terrible truth about Manderley is that someone is always watching. Manderley Resort is a gleaming new 20-story hotel on the California coast. It's about to open its doors, and the world, at least those with the means to afford it, will be welcomed into a palace of opulence and unparalleled security. But someone is determined that Manderley will never open. The staff has no idea that their every move is being watched, and over the next 12 hours, they will be killed off, one by one. And then our other reading soon book takes me into a professional reading, and that is The Monumental Challenge of Preservation, The Past and the Volatile World by Michelle Clunin. The monuments, movable, immovable, tangible, and intangible, of the world's shared cultural heritage are at risk. War, terrorism, natural disaster, vandalism, and neglect make the work of preservation a greater challenge than it has been since World War II. In The Monumental Challenge of Preservation, Michelle Clunin makes the case that at this critical juncture, we must consider preservation in the broadest possible contexts. Preservation requires the efforts of an increasing number of stakeholders. And that's what we'll be reading. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.